Welcome to Truth and Liberty. Thank you for joining our interactive daily broadcast where trusted leaders bring insights and analysis to the issues from a biblical perspective. According to the Bible, it's the truth you know that sets you free. So call in today to get biblical answers, information, and resources to help you stand for truth and effect godly change in our nation and the world. And now here's your host, Richard Harris. Hello, everyone. This is Richard Harris, and I just want to welcome you to the Truth and Liberty Live Call-In Show. Uh, I'm really excited to be with you today, and uh, you might have noticed that uh, it's just me today, no guest on the show, uh, but I'm really looking forward to being with you and sharing with you today. Um, as, uh, as you may know here on Truth and Liberty, we've gone to a five-day-a-week program uh, with a, a, a panel of different hosts from Andrew Womack and myself and Alex McFarland. Um, in the past, we've had Pastor Mark Coward and E.W. Jackson and uh, Pastor Dwayne Sheriff occasionally filling in. So we are bringing you, I believe here on Truth and Liberty, I believe we're bringing you some of the best uh, biblical analysis and Bible teaching anywhere out there. Our focus at Truth and Liberty is still what it has always been, uh, to equip and mobilize and unify the body of Christ to stand for truth in the public square in the seven mountains of cultural influence. And uh, this is what I work on here as the executive director of Truth and Liberty every day of the week, uh, trying to um, enable you, equip you uh, to be uh, that, that, uh, that light in the darkness, you know, to stand up for Christ out there in the culture. And, um, you know, I'm excited about what God is doing. There's some amazing things. You know, He has brought into this organization, into this ministry, some people and some relationships with influencers, at just the highest levels. Um, and uh, it's so exciting. You know, at our awards banquet last May, we had Dinesh D'Souza was our keynote speaker. Um, last uh, Monday, Andrew and I had the honor of interviewing uh, Ben Carson, uh, former HUD secretary, pr presidential candidate uh, here on Truth and Liberty. So I'm telling you that on, on this program, you you know, we, we, got, we dive deep here on Truth and Liberty uh, because we want you to be fully equipped. We don't want you just to have sound bites, right? We want you to be equipped so that you can be that soldier for Christ in the public square that I believe, I believe all of you really and truly in your heart of hearts, you want that, you're desiring that. Uh, you don't want to just uh, sit in your living room and, and look and get mad at the TV anymore. You want to make a difference. And if that's you, if you want to make a difference, then Truth and Liberty is, is I'm, I'm just going to say this, we're the place for you, okay? So I, I just want to say um, we've got coming up in September our annual conference the Truth and Liberty Conference, and it's going to be a great time. And if you would go online, truthandliberty.net, check out the conference information there, make plans to come today. It's September 7th, 8th, 9th. Andrew will be here. He'll be ministering. I'll be ministering. Uh, Alex McFarland, Pastor Lucas Miles, who's a uh, really has a deep insights into God's Word and culture. Uh, David Barton and Chad Connolly, um, Janet Porter, Muhammad Faridi. We're going to have uh, workshops on Friday afternoon that are going to uh, bring uh, valuable information to you about some critical subjects. Also, uh, a premier presentation stage performance of a drama uh, written by Elizabeth Murin called Overturned. It's going to celebrate and commemorate 
uh, the overturning of the infamous Roe versus Wade decision. So make your plans now to join us here in Woodland Park on the beautiful campus of Camp Karis Bible College for our annual Truth and Liberty Conference. And it's going to be the theme this year is For His Glory. And with that, I want to go ahead and, and kind of transition to what I want to share with you today. Um, uh, but before I do that, please remember today, this is a live call-in show, and I am here to answer your questions today on anything and anything, everything you want to call in about. Uh, so call in with your questions, 719-619-2341. Maybe it's stuff that's happening in the news. Maybe it's in the headlines. Maybe it's a theological question or Bible question, uh, whatever it is. I'd love to hear from you today, so call in now. Um, but speaking of giving God glory and being uh, an instrument for His glory in the culture, um, the Lord, I believe, has put on my heart a message that um, I'm calling it Five Hindrances to the Great Commission. Five things that hinder our effectiveness in the Great Commission. And, uh, you know, I got a question for you today. You're watching here, Truth and Liberty. I have a question for you. It's basically this, the way that we are doing church now in our culture, is it working? Is it working? Is the way we're doing church working? Right? Pretty simple question. Is it working? I want to submit to you today that it's not really working. We are, we are not uh, fulfilling the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 18 through uh, 20, in Jesus' last words to us before He was taken to heaven, He said, it says in verse 18, And Jesus came and spake unto the disciples, saying, All power, that word there is authority, in the Greek it's the word exousia, so He's saying, All authority is given unto Me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even unto the end of the world. Amen. So here we see in the Great Commission, Jesus commands us to go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. And, um, you know, I believe that every person who loves Jesus, it's in their heart that the world know Christ, that the world know Jesus and follow Jesus. Uh, you don't really have to teach a born-again, spirit-filled Christian this idea. It's in us automatically. I remember the moment uh, that I got saved, and from that point forward, how I had this desire in my heart to tell everybody about Christ, to let them know about this amazing salvation that had just entered into my life. And I know if you love the Lord that you've probably experienced that same thing thing. But we look around at the world today and what we see, especially in our country in America, is we see a nation that is not moving toward Christ. It appears to be moving away from Christ, right? Um, and uh, the, the question I have is, is it working? Is the way we're doing church working? Well, as we look at um, the statistics, uh, I think we're in a really serious serious time. Now, I think God is doing great things. I know that He is. I see it every day. And if you know where to, if you, if you take your eyes off the bad news and look at the good news, you can get excited too. 
But, but the truth uh, is, as, as a, the nation as a whole right now, is we are in a rapid decline, a rapid descent. I'd like to show you a graph here real quickly. Uh, this is a study that is done by the Pew Research Foundation. Every year they take a survey of Americans and ask them, uh, what religion do you, are you, or what religion do you identify with? What do you believe in? And if we can put that graph on the screen, guys, uh, this graph shows that they started taking this survey in the 19, early 1970s. And uh, from the early 1970s, from 1972 when they started until about 1992, you can see on this graph the top line are Christians. That 90% to 91, 92% of Americans said they were Christians. Now, I'll give you this, that it doesn't mean just because they say they're Christians, it doesn't mean that they had been born again and had an actual experience with Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit and all of this. I, I understand that. But nevertheless, 90% of Americans consistently identified as Christians in this poll. Beginning in about 1991 or so, those numbers began to drop and they began to drop fast. And if you look at this chart, you can see that top line steadily declining until the year 2007 when you see about 74% of Americans identify as Christians. And then in the year 2021, which is the last year shown on the graph, the percentage of Americans that identify as Christians is down to 63%. Okay, so we have gone from 91% to 63% in approximately 32 years. And in the last 15 years, we've dropped a percentage point every year. And then you look at the bottom of the graph, you can see this green bar. Those are people that identify with other religions. So Islam, New Age, Hinduism, whatever. That number has stayed the same, somewhere between 5 and 7% for the last 30 years. But the other graph you see is the black line and the gray line. Those are people that have no belief in God. The religiously unaffiliated. I don't have a faith. I believe sometimes they'll say I'm God or I'm agnostic or I'm atheist. That number has been steadily increasing along the same time path as the decline of Christianity. Atheism and agnosticism has been rising at about the same rate. So what in 1992 was 6% of Americans had no faith in God. Now 29% of Americans say they have no faith in God. So for those of you today, you can take the graph down. For those of you today who love Jesus, I'm wondering, does this graph have the same effect on you as it does on, did on me when I saw it for the first time about three months ago? I want to tell you, when I saw this graph, I fell back. I, I literally sat back in my chair. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. The magnitude of what I was seeing shocked me, and it, it jarred me, and it was disturbing to me. And I just want to say it ought to be disturbing to you. This greatest nation in the history of the world, this, uh, you know, the, this, this bedrock of Christianity is quickly and rapidly becoming a non-Christian nation right in front of our eyes. At this rate of decline, in 15 years, less than half of Americans will claim to be Christian. Who knows how many will actually be born again? And probably 45% of Americans in 15 years will be agnostic. 
Can you fathom that? Can you fathom such a thing? Well, it's happening right under our noses. So my question again, brothers and sisters, is, is it working? Is the way that we're doing church working? You know, Jesus said in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. That, there's two words that I want to focus on. We could talk about the Great Commission all day long. There's lots of different things to say about it. But two words I want to focus on. One of them is the word disciples. Disciple means in the Greek, it, it, it's the word matateo, and it means to make one a, a pupil, make someone a follower, make someone trained in this particular study or discipline. So Christ has commanded us to go forth into the world with His authority and His power to train the world in everything He's commanded. The second word I want you to look at is the word nations. That word there in the Greek is ethnos, ethnos. And it, it means people groups, all right? Ethnic groups, language groups, culture groups. It doesn't just mean uh, political boundaries, although it does mean that. It means people groups. The point I want you to take away today from that is it's not just individuals, do you understand? All right, so when we think today in today's modern church about discipleship and evangelism, I would, I would venture to wage that 99% of you, when those concepts come into your mind, you're thinking about one-on-one -on -one teaching and evangelism, Sunday school, street witnessing, right? And those things are 100% good, 100% valuable, and we have to do these things, and they are important. But I want to say to you today that discipling a nation, a people group, is more. It's bigger than just the one-on-one -on -one setting, right? How do you engage a culture? How do you disciple an entire nation? You know, in our, in our world today, what is the situation we're facing? Well, I think you're, you would agree with me that Christianity and the gospel of Jesus Christ have been and are being, we're not, we're not quite there yet, but they're quickly, quickly becoming marginalized in our culture because we've been uh, experiencing basically 120 years in the Western world, 120 years of God being pushed out of public life and culture public life and culture. You know, in the year 2018, George Barna, let's not kid ourselves, guys, about how serious this situation is. In the year 2018, George Barna, who's one of the greatest pollsters, a Christian pollster, he now has his own organization at Arizona uh, uh, Christian University, I think. Anyway, George Barna did a survey on worldview, and he found that only, get the, are you ready for this? Only 6% of Americans hold to a biblical worldview, 6%. He did the, the same study two years later, and he found it had declined to 4%, 4 in 2020. So where are we today? 2%? Where are we going to be in two years from now? Zero? The moral decline of our nation is well documented. You don't even need statistics to see it. It's all over us. With LGBT ideology, woke ideology, sexual immorality, divorce, abuse, open profanity, drug use, lawlessness, and I could go on and on. Today, there is 
a revival happening and there is a reformation that is underway. There was a revival that broke out this year at Asbury College uh, and it's spread to many college campuses. There's massive baptisms taking place in California. There are great huge meetings where people are getting saved and coming to Christ. So I believe God is up to something and he's up to something big. But I want to tell you today, and Andrew, you know, Andrew had the word from the Lord a few years ago at a meeting in Oklahoma City where the Lord basically told him that the third great awakening is already underway. And I rejoice at that. I hope you're rejoicing at that too. But I want to tell you that every great awakening, whether it was the first great awakening or the second great awakening, every great awakening culminated in cultural change. Now listen to me, church, today. You've got to hear me, please. If we are not willing as the body of Christ to step into the culture and engage our culture in every area of influence with the truth of the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, then what we are going to be doing is we are going to be choking this revival off before the fruit reaches maturity. And it will not mature into a great awakening. It will be snuffed out just like every revival before it in something that devolves into just simply a feel-good message where we get goosebumps and we get excited in church, but things continue on as they have been and the status quo is the same and our culture continues its decline into utter depravity and ruin. Now you're like, Richard, whoa, man, that's heavy. That's serious, hardcore stuff. Well, I don't know about you, but if you're reading the same headlines and seeing the same stuff that I'm seeing on a daily basis, you have no place to go. You have to agree with me. There's no other conclusion available. We have to rise up in this day and in this hour to make a difference. And one of the things that has to change, brothers and sisters, listen to me. We have got to correct our thinking. We've got to correct our thinking in the body of Christ about this thing called the Great Commission. What is it and what has Jesus actually commanded us to do? In the, in, um, the last 130 years today, um, we've been taught many wrong ideas and we have accepted them because we didn't really understand or know better. But these wrong ideas that have uh, come into the church have caused us to pull away. We've pulled away from all of these areas of influence. We've pulled away from education, surrendered it to the humanists and the secularists, and now to the homosexuals. We've pulled away from science, thinking, oh, that's, that's not for us. That, you know, we don't need... I remember one preacher one time telling me when I was a young man not to go to not to go to seminary because I, you didn't need that fancy learning, you know? Not understanding that God has called us, God has called the mind, the human mind to be redeemed. God's not afraid of knowledge or information. In fact, He delights when we as His children seek out to uncover the glory of God as revealed in nature and the laws of God that are contained in science and in physics and in astronomy, as they declare His glory, no, we think, oh, it's wrong to have learning, you know. <laughs> we pulled away from arts 
and entertainment, thinking, oh, that's evil, that's wicked, the, the child of God doesn't belong in that stuff. We've pulled away, guys, from business. Oh, it's evil, it's sinful to want to make money. It's wrong, that's greed and ungodly, so don't do that. And all we ever heard for many, many years coming out of the pulpits of Pentecostal, spirit-filled evangelical churches was, if you want to make a difference, you need to be, quote-unquote, in the ministry. And the in the ministry phrase meant what? It meant you got to stand behind the pulpit inside the four walls of the church and do something that they called preaching the gospel. And we expected the whole world to come to us. Oh, let's have Holy Ghost meetings. Let's have revival meetings inside of our churches. And I remember my pastor saying, you got to go and invite people to church. See, we wanted to win souls. We wanted people to get saved. We wanted them to get born again. But we're operating under this delusion that somehow that had to take place in the church building. <laughs> Right? And that somehow if we could just get people to come to a church meeting, we were going to change the entire world. But we're realizing now that that philosophy and mentality is broken down. It is not effective anymore. We pulled out of universities and pulled out of colleges and pulled out of schools and pulled out of hospitals and pulled out of research labs, pulled out of movie production studios. We've pulled out of everything except the church itself. And now we are under siege as the lying philosophies of the devil are permeating even the pulpits of America today. As we're putting homosexuals and transvestite and transgender people in the pulpits proclaiming a false gospel. We're putting socialists and Marxists and uh, atheists and ungodly moral relativists in the pulpits, pulpits of America. And we wonder, how is this happening? I'm telling you how it happened. It didn't happen all at once. It's the end result of wrong thinking. And I'm going to identify some of that wrong thinking now. So we've got about six minutes left in this segment, brothers and sisters. I'm kind of getting lost in this message. I hope you're enjoying this. But I'm, I'm going to talk in the next segment about five myths that we believe in the church, five myths that are hindering our effectiveness in the Great Commission. And if you've got questions today about this subject or about any subject, about what you're seeing in the headlines or maybe a Bible issue or a spiritual question of any kind, I want you to feel free to call in at the number today, 719-619-2341. And also, you know, maybe you're watching today and this is all brand new to you. Maybe you're not even a believer. Maybe you don't agree with me. Maybe you want to challenge me or you want to have a good, you know, debate on the subject. I'm game. So you call in today and I'll talk to you. I don't care what your question is today. I'd love to hear from you. Well, we've got a little less than six minutes left. And what I'm talking about today are wrong, is wrong thinking that hinders our effectiveness in the Great Commission. You know, Jesus said, he said that we should go and teach all nations, right? He didn't say, go and tell them to come into your church buildings, right? So um, the, uh, the, the, our, we, we haven't stopped and considered what really Christ was saying to us, and we haven't considered the example that He gave to us, and we haven't thought about God's purpose and plan for mankind and how the Great Commission ties into that. 
Um, so let me just take the five minutes here and talk to you a little bit about this. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, He began by saying, All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. What does Christ's authority have to do with us going and making disciples? But he obviously ties them together. Did you know that passage right there in Matthew 28 is actually, it's, it's the beginning of the redemption point for the earth. Now, the, Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection was the, the pathway to redemption. But what Jesus is doing here, he's after the resurrection and he's standing to his disciples and he's proclaiming to them, I am the second Adam. I am the one who has restored the authority of mankind on the earth. Man's position, Jesus is basically saying, man's position that was lost in the garden of Eden when Adam sinned and Adam surrendered his position as being the image bearer of Almighty God, commanded to go forth and take dominion over the earth, that loss that Adam experienced and that all mankind experienced is now undone. And I'm the one who's reversed it. I'm telling you today, brothers and sisters, disciples of mine, go forth and make all men disciples. Make all men followers of me, that we might restore that which was lost. You see, in the Garden of Eden, God said unto Adam, he said unto Adam, uh, first he said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. You see, we are image bearers of Almighty God. And God called us as his image bearers to take dominion over the earth and to replenish it. You see, what he wanted us to do is he wanted us to take his image and his likeness, his character, his love, his grace, his truth throughout the universe, throughout the world, if you will, and cause the world to just glow and live and be filled with His glory. Habakkuk chapter 2 says that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Both this way and this way, every way, God's glory shining for all of creation to see. And how does He do that? How does He shine His glory? God's ultimate will is that His glory be manifested, not like in the Old Testament with outward, you know, the glory cloud and, and uh, you know, that manifestation. But He wants His glory ultimately manifested through us, through you and me, through our, His creatures who are made in His image and in His likeness. And so, as Jesus stands there and commands us, Go ye and teach all nations to obey all things whatsoever I've commanded you. He's saying, train the world now. Go, take my power, take my love, take my word, and train the world to be image bearers of my Father, to fulfill the original purpose that I've given you, that was given you, that's now restored because I died for your sins and was raised from the dead. You see, the Great Commission is so much more than just getting people saved. It's causing and calling the world to fulfill its purpose, fulfill its actual calling to be sons and daughters of God and to live out that true purpose, that true identity that is in, on the inside of us.
Because as we by faith actually become born again and receive a new nature that's identical to God himself on the inside of us, and then we, our hearts are changed and the commandments of God are, re, are written on our hearts and on our minds, as it says in Jeremiah and says in Ezekiel, put that heart of flesh inside of us. And then as we, des we desire it and we actually begin to live out the commandments of God, the standards, the calling, uh, the prescriptions of God, the law of God in our hearts, then the glory of God shines through us, doesn't it? And God's purpose and his plan for mankind is fulfilled, you see? So that's what the Great Commission really is. And brothers and sisters, I want to submit to you today that we're not going to fulfill that Great Commission by continuing to do church the way we're doing church today. Because the way we're doing church today is short-sighted and it's shallow and it is not realistic. All right. So we've got 20 seconds left uh, and we're going to go in and we're going to take a 90 second break, share some important information. And then I'm going to be right back and I'm continue, going to continue this conversation about myths that hinder the Great Commission. And so we'll be right back after this break in about 90 seconds. At Truth and Liberty Coalition, we work to unify, educate, and mobilize the body of Christ to change nations. That's why I want to encourage you to go to our website at truthandliberty.net and subscribe so that you can begin receiving regular updates uh, about our show, news items, action alerts, blog posts, and much, much more. Uh, all you have to do is go to the website, click subscribe, share your email address, and you'll begin to be equipped to stand for truth in the public square. The moment you believe your healing is done, and it's just a matter of time until whatever the symptoms are, are gone. Get rid of the barriers, get rid of the distractions, get rid of all of that, at least in your spirit, get convinced you're healed. When we pray for healing, what we're doing is we're just calling out a supernatural speeding up of a natural process that's already in your body anyway. Let's get to the point where we hate sickness and disease because now we know what the Spirit of God wants for us who's alive in us. We focus on what the doctors can do for us more than what God can do for us. Say, God is my healer, not the doctor. God has done everything. You're already healed. You got to learn what some of these laws are and start flipping the switch. Well, hi, everybody. We're back now after the first break. This is the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show, and I'm Richard Harris. Uh, it is such a treat and an honor for me to be able to share with you today. And I hope that you're enjoying kind of this, this sharing and this teaching that I'm doing today. If you've got questions or comments about this or any other subject, please, I want you to call in. The number is 719-619-2341. And uh, we've got our lines are open, so please feel free to call in and uh, get your question in line. So what I've been talking about so far is uh, the, the title of this subject is, is uh, Five Myths That Hinder the Great Commission. So in the Great Commission, you know, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. And, and you know, I know that every one of you watching today, if you love Jesus, you want people saved. You want the world to come to know Christ. Uh, and, and, you know, you look around at what's happening to, into the world. And if you're like me, uh, these things, some of these things that are going on are grieving to you and grieving to your spirit. And I, I, I want to suggest to you today that part 
part of our uh, our challenge in the church today is that I think we're our mindset is wrong. Okay, our mindset is wrong. So let's go ahead and dive into this a little bit deeper, and let's talk about the number one myth, the number one myth that I think is hindering the Great Commission today. And this one is going to catch you a little bit off guard, okay? But the number one myth that hinders the Great Commission is the idea that pastors should just preach the gospel. Just preach the gospel. So here at Truth and Liberty, we're going all over the place all the time, calling on churches, calling on pastors to um, al allow us to connect with their flocks, to equip them, you know, to get them mobilized, to be salt and light in the public square. And the number one thing we hear back as an objection from pastors is, oh, I'm not called to get involved in politics. I'm just called to preach the gospel, just called to preach the gospel. But you know, that phrase, that phrase is what non-pastors say when, they, when they're trying to get their pastor to do the soul winning. And it's what pastors say when they want to cover up their own refusal to address difficult issues. Ouch, I, I probably just stepped on somebody's toes there. This phrase, I'm just called to preach the gospel, what does that mean? What does that mean? I think what they mean when they say that is, uh, you know, I'm just supposed to preach uh, how to get saved, right? You know, we see in Mark chapter 16, Jesus said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. Uh, in my name, they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them, and they shall lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. I want to tell you today, guys, I believe in this commandment in Mark chapter 16 as much as anything. I love soul winning, going out on the streets and winning people to Christ. I love it. It's one of the funnest things, the greatest things. There's nothing in life quite as enjoyable as bringing someone else to Jesus Christ. But did you know that, that bringing someone to faith in Christ is only, the, as glorious as it is, it's only the beginning point of the Great Commission, right? And if we stop there, if we think that's all we're called to do, then we're never going to fulfill the Great Commission. The gospel is the good news, right? Preach means to proclaim. Um, but this is really, it's the calling of evangelism, the calling to evangelize. We are all called to evangelize, every single one of us. But um, the, the calling to evangelize is not the primary, it's not, uh, what I should say is it's not the full function of a pastor, okay? Uh, it is your calling, it's one of the things we're called to do. But if you hold the office of a pastor, you do not hold the office of an evangelist. The office of an evangelist is a different office in the fivefold ministry than that of the pastor. 
Um, evangelism is critical, but it is only the beginning of making disciples. The pastor's role, so how many of you have heard the five-fold uh, ministry? Okay, so the five-fold ministry is set forth for us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. It says there that the Lord Himself, Jesus, gave some uh, apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why did He give those five gifts in the body? Well, the next verse, verse 12, tells us, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, meaning building up, to build up means both to strengthen and to expand. So for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this fivefold ministry is given um, so that the body of Christ reaches maturity. You see, the body of Christ, the church, the bride of Christ, is Christ's presence and representative on the earth. We are called to do the very thing that Jesus did, the work, the ministry of Jesus, to take His, His work on the cross and minister it to the world. To do that effectively, though, we, the body, we have to be walking in the fullness of Christ. You see, it says there, it says uh, that we might grow up in verse 15, speaking the truth in love, truth, truth, that we speak the truth in love and we might grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together, compacted by this, which every joint supplies according to the effectual working uh, in the measure of every part, and on and on it goes. The picture Paul is painting here is that we are Christ's body, and we will grow up and be strong and mature in Him to fulfill His mission in the earth. This is the calling of the fivefold ministry. So where does the pastor, one of the five, fit in there? If the pastor is trying to do the work of the evangelist all the time and he thinks that's all he's called to do, then he's not going to be able to fulfill the rest of his ministry and the body of Christ will not be edified, built up into the fullness of Christ and the body will not be fulfilling the work of Christ in the earth. The same thing is true for an apostle and a prophet and a teacher. If they all just say, oh, I'm only called to preach the gospel, which is the essential work of the evangelist, uh, then the body of Christ is not going to be equipped. You see, guys, listen now. What we're doing in the church today is Christians are sitting in the pew, and we might every once in a while invite somebody to church, our work, co-worker, our neighbor. If you're really on fire for Jesus, you do that. But most Christians never even do that. What we expect is we expect the pastor through advertising and slick marketing and a good website, we expect him to get the church pews filled and then he or she preaches the gospel and people get saved by going down to the altar, right? That we think is evangelism, okay? Listen, I believe as much as anybody in the good old fashioned altar call. But I want to tell you today that most people that come to Jesus Christ do not get saved at altar calls. Most people that come to Christ get saved because of the witness of a friend or a neighbor or a family member. And because they, they tell them about Jesus and over the process of time, by watching their life and their transformation, they're drawn to Christ. Okay? The altar call is important, but it is not the primary method for evangelism. We need to look at how Jesus did it. What did Jesus do? 
Jesus, it's true, he did minister in synagogues. It says that. But most of the Lord's ministry took place in the marketplace and in the fields and on the roads. And most of, his, most of his time was not spent preaching to the crowds. Most of his time was spent ministering to his disciples, equipping them to go out, equipping them to be the ones to make disciples. You see, Mark chapter 16, just like Matthew chapter 28, says we are to go. It doesn't say tell the world to come doesn't say tell the world to come to church. You are supposed to be the church and you are supposed to take church to the world. I am too. So, uh, so my point today, myth number one, is that my pastor is supposed to just preach the gospel and I get to be a spectator. You know, church is not a spectator sport. Christianity is not a spectator sport. We are all called and we are all equipped, right, to make disciples of all nations. That's myth number one, is my pastor should just preach the gospel. No, the pastor is called to equip, edify, teach, build up, protect the flock of Jesus Christ, so that the flock of Christ, the bride of Christ, might stand up and do the work of the ministry in the world. Amen. So I want to ask you today, uh, if the pastor is not equipping the church because he doesn't want to talk about controversial issues or because he thinks it's just his job to win people to Christ at the altar, then how is the church ever going to be effective? And that brings me to myth number two. Myth number two that hinders the Great Commission is that we just need to love people. Notice how important that word just is when we throw it in there. Right? We just need to preach the gospel. We just need to love people. A lot of folks today say that you know, all of this confrontation that's going on is not good. We shouldn't be challenging people. We shouldn't be saying that this is a sin or this is evil or calling. We shouldn't get involved in controversial subjects or politics. We should just love people, right? You know, I... It is critical. It is important. It's not just critical. It is, uh, it's sinful not to love people. God is love. Christ said, I give you a new commandment in John chapter 13. He, he commanded us to love one another as he has loved us, right? And the Bible says that in, in loving one another, we fulfill the law of liberty. To love is to be God. It is to be like God, I mean. Right? So I'm not downplaying the importance of love today. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, though, 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says that love rejoices in the truth, not in iniquity. How can you love people if you are not confronting lies and deception? If you are allowing them to remain in lies, in the grip of darkness, then you're not really loving them because the Bible says you don't rejoice in iniquity, but you rejoice in truth. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17 through 18. This is a really powerful scripture. It says there, thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord thy God. So you see in, in verse 17, it says, don't hate your brother by refusing to rebuke him. 
And then in the next verse, but love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible ties loving our neighbor directly to confronting and rebuking sin. Okay, so this is a lie, this idea that I just need to love people. There, loving people cannot in and of itself bring someone to Christ. It's not possible. Because for us to come to Christ, we have to have faith. And faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, according to Romans chapter 10. So we have to hear the gospel. Now, love is critical because it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And we all need to see Jesus displayed in front of us, right? With love and kindness and compassion and patience. But if all we see is love and we never hear the truth, there's no way to be set free from our bondage. Because the, uh, Jesus said in John chapter 8, He said to those Jews which believed on Him in verse 31, If you continue in My word, then are you My disciples indeed. And then verse 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So it's only the knowing of the truth that makes us free. How are we going to know the truth if no one tells us? Like it says in Romans Chapter 10, it says, uh, it says there, how shall they believe unless one be sent? Right? So we got to get this out of our mind that all we have to do is love people. No, we have to speak the truth in love. And all of us are called to do this. Ephesians chapter 4, speaking the truth in love and grow up unto him in all things which is the head, even Christ. So the number third myth today, by the way, if, you, if this is challenging to you or you got questions, you got comments, you disagree, agree, or you want to talk about any other subject, please call in the number 719-619-2341. We've got some folks who are standing by on the phone today, and I, I, uh, I'm going to take those calls, start taking calls after the next break or possibly before. But this third myth that hinders the Great Commission, the third myth is that we should avoid, uh, that, the, that the church, the church service needs to avoid controversial subjects. And, and you might say, the, say it this way, that our church services need to be seeker-friendly. Have you ever heard the word seeker-friendly? This church is seeker-friendly. That church is seeker-friendly. It means shying away from, steering away from controversial subjects and issues. That's, the, that's like the number one tenet of seeker-friendlyism, <laughs> okay? That we're just gonna, we're gonna proclaim God's love in church and we're gonna do everything we possibly can to make people feel comfortable, okay? And so this idea of, of avoiding controversy, of course, it's always been a problem. Uh, you know, pastors throughout the, uh, the centuries uh, have been tempted to steer away from controversial subjects. But in the last 30 years, uh, this thing has gone on steroids. And avoiding controversy has been justified in the body of Christ um, uh, by the notion that we want our churches to be places where sinners feel comfortable so they can come and get saved. All right. They became popularized. Seeker friendlyism became popularized by the, uh, the preaching of Rick Hybels at Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago and then Rick Warren at Saddleback Valley Community Church in Arizona in the 1990s. And the idea is that uh, we should uh, design our church services to cater to the quote unquote unchurched. Do you remember hearing that word? You don't hear it quite as much today as you used to. 
But I remember the first time I heard the word unchurched, I thought, what is that, unchurched? I thought our calling was to reach the lost, not unchurched, right? And, and it was a, this a powerful but subtle shift in our mission. With this teaching, our mission now became not to disciple the world. Our mission became to fill the church pews so that people could be churched, right? I don't remember Jesus Christ ever calling people to be churched. Do you? And I don't remember him ever expressing the desire to have a world that had been churched. No, he, his desire in his heart, his calling is that the world be saved and that the world be discipled in him. So what happened? Well, our, our messages got shorter. Uh, we started incorporating the popular vernacular instead of scriptural terminology. We avoided controversy. We avoided confrontation. We stopped talking about sin and darkness. We stopped talking about, we stopped having Sunday school classes and we start having experiences. We got, uh, you know, smoke and lights and entertainment and rock bands and all this stuff. And listen, I'm not, I'm not opposed to those things. To, to, to smoke and light and whatever, if that's your thing, if, if you enjoy that, if that helps you, whatever, I'm, I'm okay with that. But what we can't do is we can't surrender our mission. We can't surrender our calling. We can't dilute the commandment of Jesus Christ to make uh, disciples of all nations. Um, we have to be willing to teach and proclaim the full counsel of God on every subject. This role model, this model of seeker-friendly churches has failed. It's failed in America. I showed you the graph. Let's put that up one more time, can we guys? Is it any coincidence that the decline, serious decline of Christianity in America started in the early 1990s? I could go into many reasons about why that's the case, but look at that. So is it working? Is the seeker-friendly model working? I'm gonna say to you, it's not working. In fact, we are losing and losing fast. The fourth quarter is here, guys. We've got to score some touchdowns, and we've got to do it quick. We can do this with God's help, but if we're going to do it, we've got to go back to doing it the way God said. This seeker-friendly model is poisonous and wrong, number one, because it assumes that church attendance is the same as discipleship, and that is not, that is not correct. You can sit in a pew every Sunday and never become a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you remove the teaching that will disciple people from the ministry of the church, then their presence in church is pointless. Okay, the number two thing that seeker-friendly model does is it misunderstands the purpose of the assembly of the body of Jesus Christ. The assembling together is not, the fundamental purpose of it is not to evangelize. The fundamental reason why we come together as the body of Christ is to encourage, strengthen, edify, and teach one another, okay? The body of Christ comes together to edify the body of Christ so that the body of Christ can go out like we're commanded into the world, into the marketplace, into the seven mountains of cultural influence and stand for Christ, stand for truth, represent Jesus to the world. But we've turned it on its head and we've made the church meeting about uh, the unchurched, about the lost, right? So the Christian is sitting there 
craving meat, craving spiritual meat, needing to be strengthened so that I can do the work of the ministry, and every church service turns into a milky, watered-down evangelism message, that even then that evangelism message is not very strong most of the time, and an altar call. Well, how many times can I go to the altar, right? I've already been to the altar. I've already been saved. I want to get equipped. I want to be strengthened so that I can go out and fulfill my purpose and my mission to represent Christ with my gifts and callings. The third thing that the seeker-friendly model does that's wrong is it fails to appreciate the importance of cultural engagement by the church. The subjects that are controversial that we avoid today in church, abortion, Marxism, uh, uh, you know, uh, redistribution of wealth, LGBT ideology, sexual immorality, sexual perversion, the breakdown of the family, all, divorce, all of these subjects that pastors don't want to talk about anymore, they're controversial because they are, they are presently being battled over in the culture. And your failure, pastor, listen to me, brother, your failure to address these controversial subjects means you are failing to equip your flock to address those issues in the culture. And if they're not equipped, that means they can't fulfill the calling on the body of Christ to be Jesus to the nation. All right. They sur if you surrender the mountain and then if they're not equipped to engage, if we're not equipped as the body of Christ, then what happens? Then we surrender the mountains of influence to the ungodly and to the devil. And the end result is we're backed into a corner as the church where all the mountains of influence are controlled by Satan and the messages are hitting us, you know, 90 miles a minute. The ungodly messages that are contradicting Scripture, contradicting the Bible. And we step back and we, at, we wonder, why are we losing this generation? Why are we losing our kids to the devil? Uh, we're having great church services. Yeah, it's because, Pastor, you're not stepping into the gap and fighting for truth, contending for truth, equipping your flock going deep into the Word of God, challenging these lies that Satan is promulgating in the culture and casting them down and equipping your people to do the same. Okay, the number four myth it, that we believe today that is hindering the Great Commission is that some things are secular and some things are sacred. All right? Some things are secular and some things are sacred. It's called compartmentalization. It was an idea that was introduced into the Western culture in the early 20th century by secular humanists. Secular humanists who were saying, okay, Christians, it's okay for you to have your religion, but exercise it indoors in your churches. Don't bring it out here into the government, into the schools, into the businesses, because that's offensive, right? You can have your thing there, but not here. I could go into a lot of detail about this, but compartmentalization, secularization is ungodly and of the devil. There is no such thing as secular and sacred to God. To God, all things are sacred. The Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's God's desire that His glory fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That His, the knowledge of Him be in every heart and every mind of every human being that has ever lived. So there is none of this secular sacred stuff. You can't have church sacred on Sunday and then work secular on Monday. That's not being a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's being a divided heart is what that is. That's not understanding the kingdom of God. It's not a scriptural concept. And I could go on and on about that. 
But let me touch about this, the fifth myth that we believe is that it's a sin to be involved in certain professions. Now, I grew up, spiritually speaking, when I came to Christ, I grew up uh, in sort of a, an old-time Pentecostal church, all right? And I remember hearing, don't go to movies, they're sinful. Don't go to college, it's sinful. Stay out of politics, it's sinful. Don't, you know, these, these evil businessmen that are getting rich, it's sinful, all right? This mindset is an old covenant way of thinking that is afraid of the world. It's afraid that sin in the world is going to rub off on us somehow and make us unclean to God. This is ungodly. It's wrong. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 says, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. James, or John 13, 35 says, By this shall you know, by all men know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one for another. Okay? So, how are people going to know that we're the disciples of Jesus Christ unless we're going into the world and laying our lives down for them, right? If we're staying out of business and out of entertainment and out of, the, out of medicine and all of these other professions because we think, oh, God just wants me to be in the ministry and I'm not supposed to do those things because that's sinful. And by the way, the rapture, the pre-tribulation rapture has a lot to do with this. Oh, God's just saving us so he can catch us out of here. We're bye-bye. Leave you old sinful, wicked world to deteriorate and go the way you're destined to go. I'm gone. Praise God, I'm going to catch that train out of here. I don't have to worry about sin in this life. You guys, this is an old covenant mindset. It's the wrong side of the cross. Jesus went to the sinners. He went to the, to the publicans. He went into the marketplace. He went into the devil's den, and he's calling us to do the same. We can't tolerate this mindset anymore. Pastors, listen to me now. You got to be preaching to your people and to your flock that they're called by God to be doctors, called to be lawyers, called to be businessmen, called to be astronauts, called to be scientists, called to be politicians and leaders of men. Why? So that we can take the truth into the culture and shine the light. Jesus said, let your light, in John chapter 5, verse 16, let your light so shine before men, what? That they may see the good that you do and give glory to God. How's that going to happen if we're all in the ministry? How's that going to happen if we're all inside our church building and staying in our Bible studies? All right, you guys, I'm getting worked up. I knew I would. <laughs> We've got about 45 seconds here in this block, and then we're going to take a little break. And I'm going to be right back, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to tie this message up, and then I'm going to start taking your questions. I appreciate those folks who are hanging on on the line right now. I'm going to get to your questions in two minutes, okay? So we're going to take a break here, going to share some important information, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to finish up this teaching on five myths that are hindering the Great Commission. I'll be right back after this. You were created with a purpose, written in the heart of God. Long before you were born, He is calling you to find it. We want to help you experience His unconditional love to be equipped and empowered to become a world changer. This is a godly nation. It was founded upon godly principles. God is calling us to rebuild His house. 
so that he can manifest his glory in the midst of a corrupt and pagan world. I would argue that America has been more prosperous, more successful than any other nation because we've done more in reading and applying the Bible. It is the history for Christians to speak out and to make a difference in this nation. Have you been praying about how to make your business your mission field? GospelTruth.tv Business features leadership and financial stewardship training from industry experts. Learn the next steps to building wealth and using it to grow God's kingdom. Tune in Saturdays to GospelTruth.tv Business and watch anytime with GospelTruth.tv Premium. Visit GospelTruth.tv today for biblical teaching you can trust. Okay, everybody, this is Richard. I'm back here with you on the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. I hope you're enjoying today's broadcast. I decided to take this opportunity not to have a guest because there's some on my heart I wanted to share with all of you guys. And this is a message that I've entitled, Five Myths That Hinder the Great Commission. And we've been talking about the mindset that has, is causing us to be unsuccessful in America and in the Western world, frankly, today, uh, when we're talking about winning the world to Christ. And uh, so I'm, I've outline for you five myths that hinder the Great Commission. One of them is pastors who say, oh, I'm just called to preach the gospel. Yeah, you should preach the gospel, but that's not all you're called to be. It's not your principal calling. Number two is um, that uh, some things are secular and some things are sacred. That is not true. Uh, number three uh, is that, um, uh, well, let me, let me walk through these again. I'm forgetting them here and uh, can't rattle them off. But the second one is that we should just love people. Third one is that we should avoid controversial subjects in church and the seeker-friendly model. And then uh, number five that I'm on right now is that we it's sinful to be involved in certain professions. I wanted to mention as I close here that the Christians did not always think this way. Our founding fathers understood that our primary calling, our primary duty in life is actually not evangelism or discipleship. Our primary calling is to bring glory to Almighty God. You know, the Mayflower Compact, the first uh, the, the document that was signed by the pilgrims when they were on board the Mayflower about to set foot onto Cape Cod and begin the new Christian society. You know what they said? They said, we the undersigned having undertaken for the glory of Almighty God, number one, and the advancement of the Christian faith, number two. The glory of God came before advancement of the Christian faith. You see, this was the mindset of the church for centuries, centuries, guys, that God wants us to go into every sector, every aspect of human life and human activity because all things are sacred under the Lord, our Redeemer, and to redeem those things for His glory and for His kingdom. So that's why we had Christians who led the world in science, in math, in literature, in art. You know, the telegraph, one of the greatest inventions and the, the invention that began to revolutionize communications around the world was invented by Samuel Morse, a Christian. Samuel Morse, when he sent the first message across the telegraph wire from Washington to Baltimore, you know what he telegraphed? He telegraphed out of Psalms the question, what hath God wrought? <laughs> you know, uh, in, the, in the oceans today, we have sea lanes, don't we, right? We have shipping channels because they, we know there are currents in the sea. 
Did you know those were discovered by a man named Matthew Morey, a believer? Matthew Morey is considered the father of modern oceanography, excuse me, ocean navigation. He, he was reading his Bible one day and he came across the scripture, I think it's Psalm 8 or 38, which says that there are paths in the sea. Before that time, it's in the 1800s, people did not realize there were currents like that into the sea. And he said, I'm going to discover the currents in the sea. And he discovered the modern currents in the sea that are the shipping lanes today and revolutionized shipping for the world. And I could go on and on. I could go into business. We could talk about Chick-fil-A. We could talk about Hobby Lobby. We could talk about um, uh, uh, so many different examples of believers setting the, bar, setting the mark and doing great things. You know, when it comes to government, though, and I'm about to finish here, I want to point you to a scripture. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. In this passage, the Apostle Peter is telling us that we need to submit ourselves to civil authority. He says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or governors as unto them that are sent by him, in other words, by the king, for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that doeth well. Now listen, right exactly after that he says, For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Paul the Apostle does the same thing in Romans chapter 13, where he says that the king and his ministers are ministers to thee for good. So when, if you're out there today and you think God wants to get you involved in government to make a difference, you're probably absolutely right. Because Jesus already told you, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to God. So if government, it tells us twice in the New Testament that government is a good work. They are God's ministers or servants to us for good then isn't that an area that we are called in as believers to do good in? All right, guys, so I'm going to stop now. My point from all of this is simply this, that Christ has commanded us to make disciples of all nations, and that if we keep doing things the way we've been doing them, expecting our pastor to do it with altar calls in the church service, we will lose this nation and the world. Jesus didn't do it that way. The apostles didn't do it that way. The scripture doesn't justify that method and that approach. God's called us in the church to equip the body with the entire counsel of God, fully trained, mature in Christ, that we might rise up and go into the world and be light and be uh, examples and bring the world to Christ through our individual examples and, and uh, you know, in the seven mountains of cultural influence. All right. So praise the God. I, I hope that's been illuminating and uh, hopefully maybe a little bit inspiring for you today. I want to now go in this last and final segment here on the Truth and Liberty live call-in show to our, to our callers who are calling in here. And if you've got a question, you can call in now. We've got about 24 minutes left in the show, 719-619-2341. Uh, and before I take this first call, if you need prayer, be sure to call in to Andrew's 24-7-365 prayer uh, line, which is 719-635-1111. And a Word of God trained spirit-filled prayer minister will agree with you in prayer today. All right, let's go to our first caller, Jennifer, who I understand is calling in from overseas and has been on the line for a long time now. Jennifer, thank you so much for your patience. What is your question today? Before I 
just thank you that I'm on the line for a long time. I've been so blessed because you have cons- you have confirmed so much. Praise you know, God. Because even with the five-fold ministry, just quickly, I really believe that, you know, the, the body of Christ is really restricting and limiting the Holy One of Israel under these titles. Amen. We're just a vessel and a servant, you know, because the missionaries that go into the bushes and the highways and the byways, it's, it's his spirit and his anointing that is doing all of the work. Amen. So I thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, my question is, I have a great concern because at a church where I attend that time, you know, um, there's this individual that is, he's a recent comma there but is always praying in the spirit, and now and again, some English, but is on a rooftop level and walking around the place. To me, it's a distracting spirit that mm-hmm. is craving attention. Mm. You know, and it, it will shut down anybody, pastor or anybody that is praying or is asked to pray. Is this, is this right? Because it bothers me. Um. Yeah, so so Jennifer, that's such a wonderful question. Listen, I know how you feel. I've experienced that myself. Uh, I've probably been guilty of that sometimes myself, but I've experienced that. Um, you know, the the Bible says in First Corinthians chapter fourteen, verse twenty six, uh, let all things in the context of spiritual gifts. It says, let all things be done. Uh, decent unto edifying, and then uh, I'm not sure which verse it says, but I know it's in the in the same chapter where it says, "Let all things be done decently and in order." And so the the manifestation of spiritual gifts uh, should be in order. It should never, for example, no one should be praying in tongues and speaking over. Uh, another gift that is manifesting or speaking over uh, something else that the pastor is leading in the church service, that's not in order. And if it's done uh, in a way that is loud and prevents other people from hearing or receiving ministry, that's not decent and in order. Uh, so that is a problem. Um, but this, this person, if you say, is new to the church and possibly a new believer, then probably what needs to happen is that uh, you need to first go to your pastor, share with him your concern and how this is affecting you, get guidance from him about how to deal with the situation. And either you uh, or a pastor pastor, uh, should go to the person who's doing this and very gently and very lovingly uh, bring correction. And that's probably going to be something along the lines of uh, saying, brother, uh, we are so excited to have you in our church. We love having you. You are full of the Holy Spirit, and we think that is awesome. And uh, we especially love your enthusiasm for worship, and you, you're really a blessing. But we did want to ask you if you might uh, please consider uh, uh, lowering the volume when you pray in tongues out loud, or perhaps reserving that for another time, and um, or, or or praying in tongues only when there's group prayer happening, not when there's ministry of the word or the ministry of the Holy Spirit from other other people, because you're preventing others from hearing. And and you know I would say to this brother, we know you love others, and that you don't, you're not. It's not your desire to interfere in their getting blessed. So you know we're going to trust that you are understand the spirit in which. We're asking you this, and uh, and some kind of correction like that needs to happen. Very gentle, very very gentle, not shaming him or embarrassing him in any way. And uh, the Bible says that when someone sins against us, we should go to them. If he doesn't listen, then we take another, and then if he doesn't listen, then we bring the church. So my guess is that the the first thing that ought to happen is you probably ought to go to him. Now, Jennifer, I had someone once. 
uh, in my church that I was attending do that. Uh, they weren't, it wasn't tongues though, it was uh, shouting. They would shout, amen, preach it, yes, yeah. You know, all this kind of thing. And it wasn't like a little bit, it was like constant, okay? <laughs> it got, where my wife and I, we were just, we were on, on edge the whole church service because he sat right behind us. And it was like, you knew he was gonna do it and it just made you so miserable, right? Eventually, I just turned around to this guy and I said, would you please not do that? <laughs> So that wasn't the right way to do it, was it? I didn't do that correctly. Um, this guy was so full of the love of Jesus that he received that. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I never mean to do, you know, uh, to bother you. And, and uh, he did correct himself right away. But I still feel bad because I let it simmer too long. And I got too frustrated and acted out of the flesh. So I encourage you not to act out of the flesh, but do it in the way that the Bible prescribes. And I think you'll probably have a good result. The other thing is pray before you talk to him. And uh, I think it's going to go well. All right. So thank you so much for your question. We really appreciate it. God bless you. And thanks for listening. Next, I want to go to Miss Gee uh, from Michigan. Uh, I hope I've said your name correctly, Miss Gee. How are you today? I'm good. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay. It's Miss G. Oh, okay. Sorry, Miss G. No problem. Not at all. I, fl I flipped a coin and it got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. I want to thank you because I felt like I went to church today. I mean, that was a great sermon slash class that you just taught. Amen. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. Sure. My question, um, uh, Richard, is I'd like to know, I mean, you hear this expression, at least I do a lot, separation of church and state. Yes. I want to know, is this in the Constitution? I mean, I I have my own take on that, but I want to be clear about it. So can you please okay. explain what does that mean? And is it, yeah. where is it located? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Great question. Thank you. All right. So the phrase separation of church and state does not appear in the United States Constitution. Uh, the United States Constitution in the First Amendment, um, which is the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights. So it's Amendment Number 1 to the Constitution says, Congress shall make no law. Um, restricting um, the free exercise, or, or no, it says, shall make no law uh, regarding the establishment of religion or restricting the free exercise thereof. That's it. That's what it says. There's nothing else about religion. That's it. So if you look at the words in the historical context, uh, the, this language, no established religion and no interference in the exercise of religion, and the word Congress means that our founders were saying Congress, the federal government, it was not referring to the states, it was only referring to the federal government. Congress cannot establish a religion. We cannot, we're not going to have in the United States of America a state church like the state church of England, the state church of Germany, the state church of France, the state church of Spain, all these nations that they came out of where church and state, uh, where, where the, the government endorsed the church and the church supported the government and they worked in tandem and taxes were collected to support the state church and people were excluded or punished from civil society and privileges based on whether they were members of that denomination or not. Okay. The second thing that there is no, no restriction on the free exercise of religion. We're not going to have the government passing laws 
telling people what they can and cannot believe or must do or not do in terms of their religious belief and their faith. So it's not like the Church of England where you're going to tell people that they have to attend church every Sunday or face some kind of fine, where you're going to tell people they can't read the Bible uh, because that's for the priest to do, where you have the government telling people that you have to follow only this method and mode of worship, like in the common book of prayer, for example. We're not going to do that at the federal government in the United States of America. That's the historical context. The, the principle underlying it was freedom of conscience, that a person's relationship with God is between him or her and God and God alone, that no one else has jurisdiction inside of that relationship. The government has no, no right to regulate what goes on in my mind and in my heart. And religion, faith in God, is essentially a matter of personal conviction, right? So if it's coerced, it's invalid anyway, because God knows you don't really believe it. So what's the point, right? That true faith is something that a person must believe sincerely. It can't be coerced. Furthermore, when it is coerced, it produces all kinds of harm and evil, including depriving people of their, of their God-given dignity and value and worth. It, you know, we're, we're each commanded by God to seek Him and to fulfill our purpose and destiny in relationship with Him. It's not something someone can command and direct from the outside. And when people try to do that, that's called tyranny. It's wicked. It's of the devil. And it's not from God. So this is the First Amendment. Now, the phrase separation of church and state is picked, was picked out of a letter. The letter was written by Thomas Jefferson in the early 1800s. Uh, he wrote it to a group. Uh, Thomas Jefferson had just won the presidential election. He was the third president of the United States. He had won his race for president. Um, but he had not yet been inaugurated. And there was a group of Baptists in the state of Connecticut that wrote to him a letter expressing their fear and concern that he was going to use the federal government to, um, uh, to punish them because they were Baptists, okay? And at that time, Baptists were still a small minority in America. Jefferson wrote back to them, and he said to them that he has the highest regard for the uh, freedom of conscience and, the, and the, the First Amendment of the Constitution. And he said that um, the First Amendment erects a separation between church and state and that he would not allow that wall, he said a wall of separation, he would not allow uh, that wall of separation to be breached. So Jefferson, number one, uh, was writing to a group that was afraid of the government interfering or restricting their religious expression. That's number one. So even the phrase used by Jefferson, it's, an, it's a metaphor, a wall of separation, was used to mean that the government can't interfere with church. You see that? It was not meant to say that Christians cannot express their faith in government. He never, ever would have meant that. Okay. The second thing you have to know is that Jefferson was not present at either the Constitutional Convention, nor was he a member of Congress when the First Amendment was drafted and ratified. Okay, He was in France uh, during the uh, Constitutional Convention, and then he was a member of George Washington's administration, the Secretary of State. So he was not even in on the debate, right? So what happened was that later down the road, the United States Supreme Court, a century and a half later, almost, in the 1940s, 
uh, was uh, the uh, question came before them about whether a religious, whether state-run uh, schools, government-run schools, could I, I don't remember whether it was uh, provide Bibles or something like that, or provide funding for religious schools. I can't remember the context, but in this case that came up in the 1940s, the court had to decide was this thing that the state of New York was doing a separate a violation of the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. So in this decision, the U.S. Supreme Court didn't use the language of the First Amendment. They used Thomas Jefferson's letter, who wasn't even at the Constitutional Convention or a member of Congress when the First Amendment was drafted. They picked separation of church and state out, and they quoted it, and they said, we, like, just like Jefferson, we cannot allow the slightest breach of the wall of separation of church and state. Therefore, no government, state or federal in this nation can ever do anything to endorse or support religion, nor can um, you know, there be any uh, separation of breach of this wall. And, and so the standard was changed after that for decades. And the United States began to say separation of church and state, separation of church and state, the US Supreme Court, the lower courts followed suit so that Americans forgot that that phrase isn't even in the Constitution. They don't even know what the Constitution says anymore, right? Or that that phrase, even by Jefferson, was intended to prevent government interference with religion, not Christians exercising their faith in government. Well, I think we've gained a lot of ground in this area in the last uh, few years, especially with the Bladensburg Memorial War Cross case, with uh, uh, the cases recently, including the 303 Creative case, where the Supreme Court is saying, you know what, we're not going to follow that standard. They didn't expressly repudiate separation of church and state, but basically the court is saying, we're going to look at the history of religious expression in this nation to derive uh, the intent of the founding fathers in the First Amendment. And we understand that America historically has been a Christian nation built by Christians based on biblical foundation and biblical principles. Christians have always had the liberty to express their faith in public. We have a long history of public expressions of faith with prayers at graduations and inaugural ceremonies and, and scripture on government buildings and the Ten Commandments on government buildings and so on. Now, the court hasn't gone quite so far as to undo the Ten Commandments case, but I believe it's going to get there. And uh, so that's kind of a history of the separation of church and state. I recommend to you that you get David Barton's book, Original Intent, and read it. It's really um, uh, will be eye-opening and illuminating. But separation of church and state is not in the Constitution. Uh, it, it is not the way it's interpreted by leftists and progressives today is not consistent with how the Founding Fathers intended it, uh, nor with how this country was run or operated for the first 150, 60 years. So, uh, I hope that answers your question, Miss Miss uh, G, and appreciate you calling in. All right, next we've got eight minutes left in our program. Let's go to Stacy from Texas. Hi, Stacy. How are you today? I am great, thank you, Richard. What a fiery message! My favorite quote was, "It's only the knowing of the truth that makes us free." Amen. Amen. Um, so my question is: You see a lot of those coexist bumper stickers on cars all around town. Yep. Um, what do you say to those people who believe that we should coexist and all just get along with one another? Well, um, if it's a Christian that has a coexist bumper sticker, then I hit him in the face with a wet rag. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, 
The, the basically coexist, the philosophy is one of, of relativism, moral relativism. The idea behind it is that there is no truth, that nobody, if there is truth, nobody can really know it or discern it. And we all just have to tolerate and accept all beliefs and all philosophies and all religions as equally valid, okay? All right, so it's, a, it's an intellectually and morally vacuous philosophy. In other words, there's no substance to it. It's patently not accurate, right? When you get to the bottom of it, how could it be that every philosophy is equally valid? The Oprah Winfrey approach of all paths lead to God. No, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Okay, yeah, there's lots of religions, lots of philosophies out there, but there is truly only one path to God. And there is only, the uh, truth does exist, and our uh, God has made us to discover that truth. He says that if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. It's incumbent upon us to seek God, to seek Him in His Word, to seek Him in, in, uh, in nature, to seek Him in prayer, and, and to, with, and to you know, search for Him with all our heart, like the Bible says. So, a coexist. Now, um, the reason the idea of coexisting is appealing to people is because we, we do all agree that everyone has an unalienable right to believe what they believe, right? Uh, I'm not going to come along and force any person to believe Christianity. Jesus didn't do that, and He hasn't called us to do that. No one should force another person to convert to their religion. Uh, we shouldn't um, punish people for having different beliefs and so on. And everyone should have the, the equal right to express their faith and to worship God as they see fit, as long as that doesn't infringe on the rights of others. So to that extent, to that extent coexisting is biblical, that's called love and charity. However, as I started off the show saying, love does not mean that we put our heads in the sand and ignore wrong thinking. We are called to bring truth to every person. And you know, Andrew has an incredible story that he shares about how one night it was a dark and foggy night and he's driving along on this mountain road and um, a car in front of him, uh, there's a deer in the road or whatever, I think, and they swerve to miss it, and they end up uh, jackknifing and, and going up in the air and crashing in the middle of the road. Andrew comes on the scene, and, and he pulls over, runs to the, the car, finds out wh whether they've been hurt or whatever, and calls for help, and then he sees headlights coming. And he knows that if these people that are coming down the road are not warned, then they're going to crash too, and they could be hurt or killed. So he runs into the middle of the highway and starts waving his hands, alerting the oncoming traffic, putting his own life at risk. I think it's a perfect example that, you know, people, have you ever been in that situation, Stacy? And you're like, who is this crazy person in the road? What are they doing? You know, your initial reaction is to be upset with that person. But once you realize and hear that they are speaking the truth, that they're speaking the truth in love so that you can escape the fires of hell and you can go to heaven and live with God for all eternity, suddenly you're not mad at them anymore. When you come to the knowledge of truth, you love that person, don't you? I remember the person I heard the gospel from 
And I don't even know where he is today. I couldn't find him if I wanted to. But to this very day, my heart is full of love and gratitude for his example and his boldness. And so, yeah, we, we coexist in a sense of being peaceful. But to, to the people who think coexist means Christians keep your mouth shut and pretend like every other religion is equally valid, we cannot do that. To do that is a sin. To do that is to violate the commandments of Jesus Christ and to, uh, is to, you know, um, show disrespect to the very example that he gave us as he was bold and he was courageous to confront wickedness in all its forms. Even when they brought the prostitute to him and, and tempted him to join them in stoning her, he didn't condone the sin, did he? He, he, he hated the hypocrisy and said, let those among you who are without sin cast the first stone. I believe that was in John 8. But he said to the woman, he said, woman, go and sin no more, right? So this idea that to love people means that there is no more sin anymore and we ignore all sin is foolishness. What, that's not love. That's actually selfishness. You're, you're afraid of what people think of you and you're calling that love. You want to call it love so that you can feel better about your own cowardice. I'm sorry, but that's the truth. No, love confronts sin, does it in a loving, gentle, kind, and patient manner, but it confronts it. And, and so it is with us. We're called to stand up, right? And uh, because how shall they be saved unless they hear? And how shall they hear unless one be sent? Romans chapter 10. So Stacy, thanks for your question today. Uh, speak the truth in love, sister. God bless you. And thanks for calling in. All right, so you've been watching the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. I'm Richard Harris. It's been such a delight uh, to be with you today. And uh, I shared with you today uh, a teaching on five myths that hinder the Great Commission. And my question for you today is, uh, at the beginning of the hour, is the same question I have for you now. Is it working? Is the way that we're doing church working? If it's not working, then what are you going to do to change it? What do we need to do as the body of Christ to change it? Are you going to one of these churches that operates according to the five myths? Then if you are, I want to challenge you to prayerfully consider uh, whether God might be calling you to get out of that church and go to a church that is actually following the Great Commission, where you can get equipped to stand for truth in the public square. And uh, again, I, I appreciate you guys watching. I want to say thank you to uh, CTN for carrying this broadcast um, on its network. We really appreciate our partners there. I want to remind you guys about the Truth and Liberty um, Conference, September 7, 8, and 9th here in beautiful Woodland Park, Colorado on the campus campus of, of uh, Karis Bible College. And uh, also the Healing is Here conference coming up in August. If you need healing in your body or a loved one needs healing or you just want to learn more about healing, there is nowhere better, I promise you this, than Healing is Here. Andrew Womack, who uh, has an incredible ministry of healing. Uh, Benny Hinn and many other powerful ministers are going to be here uh, ministering healing and teaching on, on how you can become a vessel for God's healing to others. So don't miss out. So again, God bless you guys. Thank you for watching today. This has been the Truth and Liberty live call-in show, and we'll see you again on Monday. God bless you. Thank you for joining today's Truth and Liberty livecast. You can watch today's and past livecasts in our archives at truthandliberty.net. 
Our goal is to educate Christians and connect them with resources and organizations to help them impact their sphere of influence. You can help us accomplish this by making a donation at truthandliberty.net slash donate. Join us next time for more Truth and Liberty.